have been. If you remember, Dicer Deed is a series where we're going through the Book of Esther. And we've identified eight Dicer Deity moments uh, in the Book of Esther. Why are we calling them Dicer Deity moments? Well, in the Book of Esther, there is no mention of God or worship or any of the normal religious terms that you would associate with a book of the Bible. But things do happen, and we, we are forced to ask the question, was that merely coincidence, dice, or was God behind that? So the eight ones that we've seen so far, and I'm going to go through them really quick, is uh, Esther, a Jewess, becomes queen. Uh, next one was Mordecai overhears a plot against Xerxes. Uh, Mordecai is a relative of Esther. Xerxes did not reward Mordecai for uh, saving his life. Haman, who's the bad guy, cast lots um, about when the best time it would be to have genocide against the Jews. And the lots came out uh, almost a year later, and that benefited the Jews. Xerxes the king had insomnia on the eve of Mordecai's execution, which Haman had set up. Uh, Xerxes' attendant, uh, when he had insomnia, happened to pull the uh, scroll that was about Mordecai saving the king. And then entry of Haman, when the king was thinking on how to uh, honor Mordecai. And if you remember, uh, Haman thought that the king wanted to reward him. So he thought of all these wonderful things. And then the king was like, excellent, let's do that for Mordecai, his mortal enemy. And then finally, Xerxes, the king, enters when Haman throws himself on the couch which Esther was uh, seated and that was a act punishable by death and if you remember after that uh, Haman was executed uh, by being impaled on a 75 foot pole. So that is where we are at um, and we are taking off uh, but before we jump in on the rest of the story here uh, turn to somebody, preferably someone you do not know, and ask them this question. What was the best reward you have ever received? Go for it. All right, come on back, come on back. So, what was the best reward you have ever received? Anybody like to weigh in on the best reward you have ever received? I'm Randy. Uh, recently, um, some little child left a, uh, thank you card back here for the sound people. And it says, thank you, sound people. Everybody really enjoys your help. Thanks, somebody. P.S. Without you, we would have a very quiet church. But But they actually spelled it quite church. Very nice. That's cool. So a thank you note. Anybody else? The best reward you have ever received. I'm Amy. Uh, my husband let my sister and I take a three-week trip this summer to Italy and the Greek islands, and it was awesome. But really what trumps that is family. Ah. That's the reward. Cool. Thank you. And somebody up front, I was told, okay, right over there. Oh, and Thomas. All right, cool. Hi, my name is Thomas. My best reward ever is my kid. Uh, Little Zoe. All right. What's it? My name is Harold Johnson, and I pray to God that I get a doggy. And I went on a bike ride with my dad one night, and I found one. 
Very good. So that was your reward. Well, cool. I was uh, finding a doggy. I wonder if your dad would say that was his reward. Uh, was he? Yeah. There's a, a Black Dog Cafe. There's a little sign it, it, um, when you're buying coffee, and it says, uh, uh, disorderly children will be given uh, two shots of espresso and a free puppy. <laughs> <laughs> That was always funny. Uh, the, the best reward, this one was actually a hard one for me, and it seems like it was a hard one for, for other people. And in the, uh, Mine wasn't really a tangible like, thing uh, that was a reward. I remember uh, when I was working through college and I was working for Toyota, and uh, each, each month they would have an employee of the month uh, thing, which I always thought was totally stupid because I never won. <laughs> Uh, but then it like got way better because I won and and it was kind of neat all they would do is uh, they call the division that I was in the marketing department and they call you up and uh, they would just have everybody stand up and applaud and it was it was just a really cool acknowledgement and uh, reward well today as uh, we're looking in Esther in chapter 8 uh, there's a kind of a strange reward that happens. You see, uh, in the Persian Empire, if you were executed uh, as a political prisoner, as, as uh, Haman was, what would happen is all of your estate and all of your assets would revert back to the king. So this is what happens. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. So what you have here is a really huge change of events. It's a huge unexpected change of events. Remember, just hours almost uh, beforehand, it looks like uh, Mordecai is going to be killed, Esther is going to be killed, that Haman is going to win, uh, evil is going to win the day, and everything is just looking awful. And then all of these accounts, everything changes, that God takes all these dicer deity moments and says, look, if you had any doubt about the previous eight, if I am in control, guess what? I am, and I'm going to have the unthinkable happen. Not only am I going to spare you, but I'm going to put you in charge. But there's one problem. You see, uh, in the Persian Empire, when the king made a law, it could not be changed. The king couldn't even change it. Um, and this is why. They looked at the king as he was God. You ever have a boss like that? Kind of look like that. And, and uh, if he was to change the law, he, that would be acknowledgement that he was wrong. And he could never, ever do that. So we have this, this decree out there, if you remember, that Haman sent out that on this particular day, that it was the law of the land that there was going to be genocide against the Jews. And if you participated in this genocide, if you killed a Jew, guess what? You got to keep all of their earthly possessions. You know, could you imagine 
that today? If, if uh, for some reason Congress you know, made a law that said on this particular day, you could kill whoever you want and take their stuff. That's not a wool thing. <laughs> that way it would be chaos. It would, it would be awful. And this is what we're looking at. And this law cannot be changed. So even though Esther and Mordecai are in position, this, this, this plan has been set into motion. And it's looking really bleak. So in verse 3 says, Now once more Esther came before the king. Now I want you to... Uh, watch Esther here. You see, if you remember, remember the first time she went up before the king, she was very timid. She was very scared because it meant her life. But this time, the Bible doesn't record any uh, timidity or anything uh, like that, that she goes right up there, falls down at his feet, and begging him with tears to stop Haman's evil plot against the Jews. And again, the king held out the gold scepter to Esther. So she rose and stood before him and said, If your majesty is pleased with me and he thinks that it is right, send out a decree reversing Haman's order to destroy the Jews throughout the providence of the king's king. You see, it's very interesting how she approaches the king. When she comes up to him, and there's a really a huge contrast between Haman and Mordecai and how they respond to authority and how authority responds to them. See, Esther, throughout the story, even when she disagrees with the king, she always approaches him with humility and she always approaches him with the due respect that his position um, uh, demands. And things, he is always uh, quite favorable to her. But when we look at Mordecai, Mordecai in his response to authority was, was more of prideful. You remember, he wouldn't show the proper respect to Haman. And, and Things went from bad to worse. And I think that, that we really can't control what happens outside of us. If our, if our boss is a jerk, if Congress or the president, you know, make a decision that adversely uh, uh, affects us, if, if somebody, if a police officer or, or somebody in authority over us makes a decision that, that we don't agree with, we really, really can't do anything about that decision. But the thing that we can do is uh, determine how we respond to that. And how we respond can speak volumes of who we are in Jesus Christ. So let's continue here. Verse 6 says, she said, after he said, speak, said, for how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed. Verse 7, Then Queen King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the estate of Haman, and he has been hanged on the gallows, or a better translation is impaled on a pole, because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name 
telling them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember, whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can never be revoked. Oh my gosh. What do you do? I mean, just imagine somebody who has wronged you and has had power over you. And now you have an opportunity to get back at them. The king has just said, look, I can't do anything about the previous law. On this particular day, people are going to attack and have tried to do genocide against your people and take all of their stuff. They're going to uh, kill and annihilate, remember all that wording, and, and they're going to kill the women and the children, everybody. You are going to be wiped off the planet. I can't do anything about that order. But what I'm going to do is leave it up to you to figure out how or what you do. Could you imagine having the responsibility of all your friends, all your family, and all your people group, knowing that this impending thing is coming on, and now you have the power to do something about it, but you're not, you're not sure what? And I think that the, the base instinct, if, if we're really honest about it, about just our, our first instinct would be, okay, let's strike first. Let's, let's make them... Uh, let's take them down a notch. Let's make them think twice about attacking us. But it's interesting that Mordecai and Esther, they don't react that way. In fact, they do something very, very interesting. I had somebody come up to me last week, and they were quite distressed about chapter 9 in Esther. Because next week it gets kind of hairy. And in our, with our 21st century sensibilities and, and morality, we look at it and we say, whoa, you know, how, how could God, a loving God, allow this to happen? Well, we got to remember that, that God is in control and he is allowing things to happen, but also that, that the things that he allows to happen, he is letting um, sin and, and other bad things decisions run their natural course. And what we have here is an imperfect world. You see, if this was just a book and it was a fairy tale book, we would wrap it up this week and we would say that, you know, Esther and, and, and Xerxes lived happily ever after. Mordecai was great. Everybody was happy and sang Kumbaya on Sundays. But this is real life. This really happened. And there have been things set into place that are ugly and disturbing and painful and hurtful. And there's real people involved here. Much like in our lives when we have conflict and we have adversity, that it doesn't always end happy. Sometimes... It just works out, and hopefully we learn from it. My dad, often when I would get in trouble, I'd hurt myself, or uh, I would make a terrible mistake. Uh, after, every, you know, after everything was said and done, I knew something was coming, and I hated it. He would sit me down and say, Mark? Yeah. 
what did we learn from this? <laughs> and it's like, oh, I hated that. It was probably one of the most valuable things in my life to, to do that practice, but I just knew it was coming. It was hard. And this is one of these things that I think that as we take a step back and, and, and uh, Esther and Mordecai are looking, it's like, there's like, what did we learn from this situation? Because I bet they both learned a lot. So we pick up on verse 9, it says, So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summonsed, and Mordecai dictated, they wrote a decree to the Jews and to the princes and the governors and the local officials of all 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in the script and languages of all the people, um, excuse me, all the people, of the empire, including the Jews. Now, this is really important. We're going to start seeing some differences between Haman's original decree to have genocide against the Jews and this evil plot, and now Mordecai and Esther trying to make the best of a really bad situation. And we're going to see some differences that are going to hopefully give us some context and understanding that what happens next week. You see, the first thing is that he did it in all the people's languages, including the Jews. He actually added this decree in Hebrew. Haman's original decree to kill the Jews, he never had it transcribed into their language. They had to hear it for somebody else. And what we're having here is, is Esther and Haman making sure that all the, the uh, languages of the empire understand what is going to be instructed. Verse 10, Mordecai wrote in the name of Xerxes and sealed the message with the king's signet. He sent the letters by swift messengers who rode horses, especially bred for the king's services. The king decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite and defend their lives. Now the next sentence is very important for us to understand the difference between Haman and his plot and Esther and Mordecai trying to respond and save their people. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate. Those are the exact same words that Haman used. Anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and their wives and to take the property of their enemies. You see, what they're doing here is saying, you know what, before the Jews were not going to be able to defend themselves. They weren't going to be allowed to organize and to prepare for this onslaught. But now we're going to allow them to. They have nine months to come together and prepare for this attack that is going to happen. The other thing that's interesting is that they're not going to throw the first stone. You know, if think about it, what strategically, if you knew we were going to be attacked strategically, what would probably be the best course of action? To attack first, right? To maybe do a sneak attack the week before. But that's not what they're doing. They're, they're not trying to conquer here. They're trying to defend their friends and their, and their families. The other thing that's interesting is that they protect the women and children in, the, in this decree. They're saying, look, 
you can protect ours, but you're not allowed to take aggression about of anyone else. They could have done anything they wanted, but they're like having a measured response. And then the final thing is very interesting. If they defeat somebody, they won't take any compensation or money from them. So what we're having, we're seeing here is a total difference between Haman's original decree and Esther and Mordecai's decree. Their de the first decree was a decree of genocide and to kill and to profit from it. And the second decree was to defend, protect, and, not, and did not have any personal gain. The day was chosen for the event throughout the provinces of King Xerxes. It was March 7th of the next year, nine months later. A copy of the decree was to be recognized as law in every province and proclaimed to all the people. That way the Jews would be ready on that day to take revenge on their enemies. So urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on horse, bred for the king's service. The same decree was also issued at the fortress of Susa. Then Mordecai put on the royal robe of blue and white and the great crown of gold. And he wore an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every city and province, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. Now, this is an amazing turn of events. That, that Mordecai, who was meant to be killed, is now wearing a crown. And he's wearing these, these robes. And I think that is so important as we are going through adversity. And even when things of impending doom are facing us like they were facing, a law that could not be changed, God is in control. And as we see with Mordecai, even when we don't respond always in the best way, that God shows us a tremendous amount of grace. That when we're going through life and we're trying to do the best we can and, and people who we don't know or maybe we do know but have authority over us are making decisions that, that adversely affect us. That we can have the choice, we can launch out at them and, and respond in a, in a way that's carnal and ugly and at an equal measure that they sent out to us. Or we can choose to take a step back and be honest with God and say, God, this situation really hurts. That this person is, is hurting me and they meant ill for me. And I want to, with all my being, strike out and hurt them. But what is more important is that you are honored and glorified in my actions since I am a child of yours. 
This is a very difficult thing to do, to say the least. Because when somebody strikes us, we want to strike back. When somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them back. When somebody does wrong to us, we want to wrong them. And by doing that, that perpetuates the evil that, is per that permeates our world. It takes somebody at some point to say, you know what? Even though I think right now in this situation, I would feel better if I struck out and took control. I need to have a faith that's larger than this particular situation. I have to have faith that God is in control and working through this. I've gotten several emails and comments from people who are going through some amazingly adverse times right now. And they can't see God in it. And they're saying that this series has been such a godsend. Because as they look at Esther and her story and they see the, the pain and the hurt and the things just not working out the way that you think that they should, that they're able to say, you know what? Even though I can't see in this particular situation God's hand, I know it is there. And if I respond correctly, if I have faith that transcends this situation and honor God and worship him with my actions, he will be glorified. And I think it's interesting how it says that many people of the land became Jews themselves. And then it says, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. And I think that that is definitely an a aspect of it that they've seen what God has been doing through this. They've seen the tremendous change. And they're worried if the Jews are anything like just normal people and not being led by the creator of the universe, there's a real reason to have fear. But what an amazing thing, what an amazing testimony for the Jews not to take advantage of their newfound power, but instead saying, you know what? We are only going to defend ourselves if somebody attacks us. What do you think that communicated to people? I think it communicated that their God is a loving and just and graceful God. And I think the same thing is said when we, how we respond to adversity. People are watching. One of my mentors, he's one of the large, he was the largest developer in Los Angeles of residential property. And uh, he hit a, he hit a depression and, and lost everything. And I remember as a little kid watching this extremely wealthy man lose all of it. And uh, we had a lot of connections with, with this family. We, uh, he built a home, and, and uh, after he was done with it, and he built himself another home, and my family moved into his previous home, where my parents still live today. 
that he lived just up the street from us. I would go up and ride horses at his house. That I watched this man uh, do amazing things. And when I saw it all come unraveled as a little kid, it was probably one of the joyous things ever. You're like, how could you say that? Well, you see, before this man lost his company and lost all his money, he was about to lose his wife, he was about to lose his family because that's what was important to him up until that point. And instead of getting bitter and instead of separating the family, he turned to God and he gave his life to the Lord. And to watch what God has done through his life, and I, I stood it, 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 on the sidelines. We didn't really have a close relationship until I hit my depression. And the amazing thing is that he got his family back and, and he got his, his wife back and it was really strong. And then God moved them to Colorado Springs where they became one of the largest developers in Colorado Springs and we became great friends. I remember my parents and I sitting with them one time and, and I think my dad or my mom turned to him and it says, he said, they said to him, they said, it's scary knowing that you've been being watched all of these years. You see, how we respond, even to those who are not followers of Christ, I was not a follower of Christ, speaks volumes of not only who we are, but who we think God is. And to watch what God did in this man's life when we all thought it was totally over. To see God take this devastation and to rise him and his family out as a God-fearing man and then to bless him so enormously. It was an amazing lesson. Not only to him, I'm sure, but to me as well. And I know that so many of us don't like to take the responsibility of thinking that our actions speak about who God is. But if we call ourselves followers of Christ, how we respond, people are watching. Not only the people who are followers of Christ, but people who are not, especially them. And they step back and say, wow, how do they respond when they're going through adversity? How do they respond when things are going well? How do they respond when just life is happening on a daily basis? And you never know the lessons that we are teaching through our actions are going to impact somebody and maybe eternally. We can learn a lot from Esther and Mordecai. We can learn a lot from one another and people can learn a lot from you. Let's pray. Dear God, times of elevated responsibility for our actions are scary. To think 
that when we identify ourselves with you, that our actions are a reflection on you. That people are watching, maybe rightly or, or wrongly, but the reality is what we do matters. What we do teaches who you are. God, let us be good teachers. Let us live a life that's worthy of you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are going through uh